Welcome to Downstage Center, a production of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. With us today is Jefferson Mays, who is the Tony winner this year for the best performance by a leading actor in a play for his performance as Charlotte von Malstorff in I Am My Own Wife. The show itself won the Tony as the best play of 2004. Jefferson also received the Drama Desk and the Outer Critics Circle Awards for Outstanding Solo Performance and an OB for a performance all for this season and all for this show. Also previously, Jefferson, you won an OB for a performance in 1994 for Orestes. You have your BA from Yale, your MFA from University of California, San Diego. Welcome to Downstage Center. Thank you so much. Many of our listeners have not seen your show. Could you describe to them exactly what your character is and what the show itself is? I am my own wife. Sure. Um, mainly, I mean, I play, I, I guess I've never really had the guts to count, but about 35 odd characters uh, in this show. And, um, and and many of them are odd. Yes, and many of them are <laughs> odd, yes. Um, uh, but mainly I play Charlotte von Malsdorf, who essentially survived the, the two most repressive regimes of uh, the 20th century, certainly, the Nazis and the communists in Germany, um, living openly as a cross-dresser. And this is uh, her story. Um, and essentially, I'd say it's a survivor's tale, certainly. And it's literally a one-man or one-woman, in this case, show. Yes, right. One, one man who, who thinks... He's a woman. And lives yeah. as a woman. Yes, indeed. And you are on stage in two acts the entire time with nobody else out there with you. That's true, yes. Now, you had the opportunity to really be with this project from very early on, starting at the Sundance Institute several summers ago. Yes. And can you can you talk a bit about what that process was? Because it really gave you... You had a lot of creative input into the shape of what yes, this show Yes, it was became. a rare position to be in as an actor. Um Doug had uh, originally been commissioned at Playwright, by Playwrights Horizons to write a play, and he knew very early on that he wanted to dramatize the life of this singular person, Charlotte von Malsdorff, whom he met in Germany. Uh, and he actually began in about 1990. Yeah, exactly. About Shortly after the fall of the wall. And you're speaking of Doug Wright. Doug Wright, the playwright, yeah. yeah. And uh, his friend, uh, John Marks, was uh, then, who actually figures in the play, uh, bureau chief at U.S. News and World Report and said, Doug, you have to come over and meet this individual. She's way up your alley. And uh, Doug did la that. And uh, as I said, very quickly realized he wanted to honor her life, dramatize her life on the stage. But then followed about 10 years of paralyzing writer's block. Um, he felt to deal with her life would be almost an act of betrayal um, as more things came to light about her life, um, which are revealed in the play, it became quite complicated what she had to do in order to sort of remain true to herself and be able to survive these uh, totalitarian regimes. So um, he finally was approached by Sundance Theatre Lab that said, Doug, just bring all of your, sor your source material out, your, your hours and hours of transcripted interviews, a director that you love and respect, uh, and a cast, and see what you can make in three weeks. And so we chose, chose Moises Kaufman, who is uh, certainly adept at dealing with documentary theater, the Laramie right, Project, Gross Indecency. The Project. Exactly. Decency, right. But he felt guilty about asking for a cast, said, I don't know how many people I'm going to need for this, and uh, wanted to save them considerable expense and airfare. So they said, well, just bring someone, an actor that you've worked with in the past that you 
could read them simply read the material, and uh, so he called me up. And it was it was Moises who called you, or uh, it was Doug, Doug did. Oh, okay. Yeah. And uh, said, you know, do you want to come out to you to the mountains of Utah to be in a play that hasn't been written yet? And mm-hmm. I said, sure, if, you, if you're writing it. And uh, and then um, I asked who, who the character was, and he said, a 65 year old East German transvestite. And that couldn't be further from me. Next time you'll you you <laughs> might well it worked out, but next time you might say yes after you've heard what the yes was. right. And I can just picture that playing in the mountains of Utah. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I uh, I was sort of wandering around the rehearsal hall, looking like a deranged Bronte sister with these Mormon tourists, you know, <laughs> walking past and uh, looking at me <laughs> curiously. Um, so uh, that was the start of the adventure, and and it was a hi- probably the most highly collaborative process I've ever been involved in. It was just us sitting around this table in this cabin in the mountains, um, poring over her uh, I- the interviews that he conducted with Charlotta, and um, pulling out stories and, and scenes and juxtaposing them. And I would of course read Doug Wright's voice and her voice in conversation. And uh, little by little, it seemed it would be a good idea to have it be a one-person show. Um, she had to assume so many guises in this tightrope act of negotiating her way through these uh, repressive regimes. It made sense that there'd be a sort of a morphing uh, actor behind it all, uh, playing all these different roles. And I think perversely we were attracted to the idea of everyone, be they you know, Nazi, SS officer, Stasi agent, or Charlotte herself wearing a, uh, a dress. So it became, transvestism became the norm rather than the uh, exception. And in fact, you did, in terms of some of the conceptualization of the play, you did a certain arts and crafts project, which ended up figuring very strongly in right. how the play was approached. Yes, we were... Um, I mean, I had never heard of this character before. And uh, Moises's knowledge of her was also limited. So uh, it was sort of... Making this piece was sort of Ouija board theater or uh, divining rod theater, in which we approached it highly intuitively, uh, n- knowing very little. So Moises very bravely, after the first day, said, look, everyone go home, and, and for homework, come in with a five-minute play based on Charlotte's life or something from Charlotte's life that you encountered today after that struck one, after you. After the first after day After the first day, yeah. And, uh, and that's a very useful and brave thing to do, I think, because it, it, it gets at the root of your own personal interest. And uh, mine, evidently, was her furniture. I mean, this, this person collected uh, late 19th century objets d'art and furniture from the Grundezeit period, the foundation time period of Kaiser Wilhelm II. Beautiful, gothic, neo-gothic, ornate furniture, neo-Renaissance furniture, mass-produced, not handmade. And this was her obsession. And she collected this since she was five years old, filled rooms and warehouses with the stuff, and ultimately made this museum in East Berlin devoted to this... uh, rather kitschy, I suppose, furniture from this bygone era that she loved. And um, and I thought that was an extraordinary and, and somewhat heroic thing to do. Um, and so I was pouring through her museum catalogs, and uh, Duck had also given me a, a tape cassette of his first tour of the Grundezeit Museum in Malsdorf. And uh, so I put it on to hear her voice, and uh, and then I started drawing... Uh, the furniture on index cards, and uh, you know the tape would play out, and I'd turn it over and listen to the other side. And uh, throughout the night, I made a little room. I cut them out of the index cards with nail scissors from my dop kit, and uh, put them together with uh, bits of uh, scotch tape. And um, as dawn was breaking over the mountains, I had a little 
a salon of a sofa and a phonograph and a sideboard and a chair and grandfather clock. And uh, so I put this in a shoebox, and the next day I gave a little virtual tour of her museum at Charlotta, and that has found its way into the show. Hmm. And the, the first act is labeled phonographs, the second act is labeled clocks, mm-hmm. and they play very prominently in the both the set as well as your actions on stage. Yes, yes. Um, and, of course, uh, I mean, so much of the play is about recording, and mm-hmm. recording history. Who, who records history? And uh, with this play, we have a y- unique, precious, uh, decidedly marginalized history of 20th century German told through the eyes of this uh, of this cross-dresser, uh, gay, cross-dressing gay man um, who, I guess, described himself as a female spirit in a man's body. So uh, a real a real character she is. Now, Charlotta had passed away before this show was being developed, so you, I guess, never met her. Well, no, I never met her. She was alive while it was being developed, uh-huh. through most of its development, actually. Right. Um, and I was going to go and meet her in Porlebrun, Sweden, where she'd uh-huh. since relocated, but she died before I could, and I have mixed feelings about that. Would I you mean, have wanted to meet her, do you think? Yes, well, I, I have mixed feelings. Um, I, I, yes, I would love to have met her. But as the play points out, sometimes there's nothing more paralyzing than, than the truth, so maybe mm. that aesthetic distance was useful. Now, you certainly were able to listen to her tapes yes. and read the transcripts and all that. How did you prepare yourself for this role? Uh, through that, chiefly, listening to hours and hours of her, uh, her interviews, um, just to get the cadences, the music of her voice, and, uh, and also how um, she was physically, because I think in trying to reproduce someone's voice, it informs the body, how it has to carry itself. Uh, so, uh, and then since I've been also doing a great deal of research about World War II, um, the era, age of her, her growing up, and uh, sort of ancillary material such as that. Now, with Charlotta, of course, you were working from the tapes, but the fact is is you were playing other people. You were playing the author who's sitting yes. there in the room with mm-hmm. you, presumably most every day during rehearsal, yes. John Marks, his friend. How much were you trying to do impersonations of the people because they were very real, they were there, they were going to be coming to the show or, in fact, were creating the show? Yes. And how much was it about simply finding them as characters as you would in in another script that you might approach? Mm-hmm. Well, most of the other characters I I fabricated entirely. I mean, they, they were real people, some of them. Some of them were sort of conflations. Um, but uh, I did try to evoke Doug. Um, it's a very difficult thing to do an impersonation or an imitation of someone you know very well, ironically, because they're complicated people to you. It's hard to reduce them to their most salient uh, features. Uh, So he very sweetly and somewhat masochistically encouraged me towards grotesque caricature very early on, and that was a liberating thing, and and then I was able to pull it back from there. Um, And John Marks is from Texas, but I did make his uh, Texas accent uh, a bit more pronounced than it is in life, and his German is certainly superb in life, and I deliberately butchered it for comic effect. Mm-hmm. When, you, um, when you have to learn not only every word in the script, the entire show, but also every accent, every 
different voice. That that's quite daunting. How does one go about doing that? Just remembering all. Yes. Well, I think again, I I had the great fortune of uh, being involved from the very beginning. So these characters arrived like guests at a party. Uh-huh. Uh, we didn't know how many there would be. Um, so it was this gentle process of accretion. Um, I think if I'd encountered this text finished on the page on the first day of rehearsal, I would burst into tears and leave the room. <laughs> <laughs> did Do you speak, or did you prior to the show speak any German? I still do not speak any German, and I'm ashamed to admit it. But you're quite uh, quite convincing when you do. Well, good. I'm so glad. <laughs> I did get tutored by a, uh, a German professor uh, during one of the workshops, so I think the pronunciation is is okay. It, but uh, my wife just got me uh, the, the the Pimsleur German language course on CD, so I'm uh, that's tying what you're listening that. to in your spare time. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Now, normal. You've been doing the show obviously for a while, the Sundance Experience, and then certainly mm-hmm. you did the Playwrights Horizons run, and you've now been doing it's about seven months on Broadway so far. Normally, when we talk to actors, we say, "How do you sustain?" A long run, and the response is, "Oh, well, you know, it's working with the cast, and we're all finding different things every night." You don't have that opportunity. You, it is, it is wholly self-contained, as as some people have joked. Uh, people joked at the Tonys, "You are your own cast." Yes, yes. Um, what is that as a playing experience for an actor, as opposed to when you're when you're with a company? Yes, that's. I mean, of course, all of my work in the theater the, has been with companies. I've never done a one-person uh, show before. Um, and indeed, I've had sort of a prejudice against them. I was never interested in doing it since all my joy has been derived from, you know, the give and take and play that happens with a uh, with a cast of uh, other actors. Um, and and it terrified me because I, d- I didn't know how I was possibly going to s- sustain this uh, for any length of time. But then I realized that the audience is my scene partner. My My cast arrives at half hour every night, and they are completely different every night. I've noticed this before when I've been playing with companies of actors, but doing a one-person show, you really get a sense of this entity, which has its own IQ, its own field of interest, its own sense of humor, and um, they are what keeps me engaged. And of course, they've never heard the story before. And it's lovely to have an attentive uh, audience every night that is truly interested in the narrative. Well, you've been doing the show now, as Howard says, for seven months or so. Yes. How have how has the show evolved, or has it evolved? If I were to compare today's performance versus the first performance seven months ago, would there be any substantial differences? Have you evolved as an actor? Has the show evolved, or have you kept it pretty much the same? I, there's no way of my knowing that, really. I, 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 it's hard to track your own evolution, I think. Um, people have you know, generously said to me that it has gotten deeper, uh, since uh, since the beginning, uh, perhaps more relaxed, um, as I was f- figuring out how to play uh, the Lyceum Theater, which was considerably bigger than where we started out in New York in a 200-seat house at Playwrights Horizons. Um, so I'm not sure. I do. F- I think I do feel more confident with the material, and sometimes I'm surprised by uh, fellow cast members, as it were. I um, every now and then odd little things happen. One character named Mark Finley introduced himself as Stan Holloway uh, a few weeks ago. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. Wasn't that the voice of Winnie the Pooh? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Sterling Holloway, actually. Sterling Holloway. Um, so, uh, and then, and then uh, one time, in, uh, I guess in Chicago, I was actually bailed out on stage by n- not a fellow actor but another character. Uh, I went up on my lines. 
in fairness to myself, I'd been given this scene that day. We were in workshop, and it was a rather complicated scene in which I had to sort of embody an international... Yeah, you were doing the show that the point at the About Face Theater? At the About Face yeah. Theater in Chicago, um, in which I had to embody an international press corps. And the first reporter went up on his lines, but then another reporter's voice came in and took those lines. So you had um, Clive Twimbley from London bailing out... Um, uh, um, Oh, God, what's his name? I can't remember his name now. It has to come in sequence in order for me to remember anything in this show. But bailed out the uh, the Munich reporter. So it, I've never been rescued by a, another character I've been playing on stage before. It was an odd experience. Does the audience uh, reaction each day, does that vary? And if so, does that affect your performance in any way? Perhaps it does. I mean, the audience reaction does vary. Sometimes you think it's a comedy. Sometimes people are, are very serious indeed. I notice with the older audiences, the people that have actually lived through the Second World War, it's a, a more serious, complicated story for them, perhaps. And, of course, for the Germans that have come, um, it's, a, it's a different experience entirely. And to, to follow on that, obviously, our congratulations on your Tony Award. Do you sense a change in the, in the audience since the awards? Yes. That's always a, a curious yes. dynamic. I'd be curious to hear what you have to say other people have said about that. But Because I've never been, number one, I've never been on Broadway before. Um, so the Broadway audience is a new thing uh, for me. But I have noticed a change. I mean, there's entrance applause now before the show has even started, which is lovely. But... I'm I'm not used to it. I mean, the the beginning of the show starts in silence. She has this sort of ghostly entrance behind a, uh, a lacy scrim, sort of like an apparition, and then she opens the door, and there she is to begin her tour. And uh, and now there's entrance applause, so it changes the dynamic there. And I do have the sense that people are there to see a Tony Award-winning performance and a Tony Award-winning play, which is lovely that their expectations are high, but it's also... Uh, Somewhat disappointing that their expectations are high. <laughs> you know, we can't. <laughs> and then you have to live up to that. <laughs> right, exactly. We can't start out in a place of unknowing and mystery. And I'm curious also about both before and after. It really doesn't make a difference. Um, do you get people at the stage door every night? Do you get people? I mean, this is obviously not a big musical. It's not a big, flashy show. Do you mm -hmm. have people? And, and I'm curious as to whether they want to tell you how their life relates to the story you've just told. Yeah, that's interesting. Some of them do. Um, I mean, especially the, the Germans I've met afterwards have uh, have spoken about how it, it it's, it's spoken to their lives specifically. Um, and was she, in fact, a, a reasonably well-known figure in Germany? So did they come with a, the with a cultural though. knowledge of her? Uh, somewhat, to, to varying degrees. I mean, she was uh, a, almost uh, she was a secret until. The fall of the wall. I mean, that's when she became uh, a national star of sorts. But um, but the Germans I've spoke to uh, can certainly appreciate what she went through. This uh, incredibly re repressive regime of the of East Germany, of the, with the Stasi secret police, one out of every five to seven people being informants. Um, and they and they've said it's interesting because they believe that a German could not have written this play. You need this sort of historical and geographical distance in order to deal with this subject matter at this time. Um, they're too close to it right now. There's one other audience member I want to ask about. I understand that your wife goes every night 
does she watch every night, Certainly or is she hanging out backstage? She's just being a, just an angel and keeping me company backstage. I mean, that's one thing about doing a one-person show is you can get very lonely rattling around the dressing room. I mean, I have the only, of course, occupied you dressing room in the, the star Lyceum dressing Theater. Room, yes. yes, I managed to bag that. Um, but she comes every night and uh, d- does work on her computer or reads. And uh, she hasn't seen the show in a while, but she's an assistant director. So uh, the lovely thing is when we're on tour in the United States and abroad, uh, we'll travel together. So tell us about at least their rather inchoate plans. We know you are going to the Goodman Theater in Chicago. Yes. The plan is January. January, of February. 2005. Right. And there's talk. Where, where else can people be keeping their eyes and ears open for Well, these, this, these all are possibilities right now. Nothing's been set in stone. But I think a tour of most uh, major cities uh, throughout the, the nation. Uh, Seattle, perhaps. San Francisco, almost certainly. Uh, Los Angeles is very likely. Uh, La Jolla, California, perhaps. Boston, Washington, Hartford. And do you know if there's, if there's a production... At any point being planned, whether with you or another production in Germany? Yes, yes. Uh, there's been a great deal of interest in Germany. However, that is the question. Are we going to uh, translate this one <laughs> and give it to a German actor, or am I going to do it over there? Um, some German producers think that they could uh, reach a wider audience, of course, with a German language production. However, that brings up all sorts of questions, because in so many ways this play is about the act of translation. Um, and uh, so that that remains to be seen. There's it's a possibility that I'll go over there and do uh, a limited engagement, and then it will uh, be the, taken over. Does Doug Wright speak German? Uh, yes. So he would be able to translate it himself. He if that could. Be... I think he would need a good deal of mm-hmm. of help uh, with it, but uh, but he could um, certainly make the first stab at it. If our our listeners from uh, anywhere in this country were to jump on a jet plane and fly to New York to see you, I think it's safe to say that if they are sold a ticket, they will see you because you you do not have an understudy. Right. The show will always go on with you. I am my own understudy. <laughs> That's a good name for Boy, another show. Boy, there's just a raft of jokes <laughs> you can keep making off of this one. The show, you said the show was about translation. It is also a show about personal transformation and a choice. And... Here you are, a working actor for many, many years, doing lots of regional work, off-Broadway work, and suddenly you are on Broadway, and now with the Tony Award. How has that changed things for you over the course of the past year or so? How has your life changed? Well, um, I'm honestly not completely aware of that, because... I've Again, maybe we'll have to ask your wife. <laughs> yes, maybe, perhaps so. I um, this show has been so all-consuming, you know, eight times a week. And uh, when I'm not doing the show, I'm sort of preparing to do the show, or or unconscious, or talking about the show, or talking about it. Yes. Um, so I don't. Uh, I'm I'm not sure. Um, I but know that probably the next two years of my life are going to be spent in a dress and a string of pearls <laughs> uh, touring the world. Basic black. But right, there exactly. were Now, there are some films coming out shortly that you did. Were those done prior to starting the show? Actually, no, they were done after the show so, uh, in playwrights. Yeah. So between playwrights and then yes. the show starting One out. is a remake of, of Alfie um, in which I play a German doctor 
So there's a link there. Mm-hmm. Um, so they just said, oh, German in the play, he can perhaps play. Perhaps so, mm-hmm. perhaps so. Um, and and then I, I do play a um, historical character, uh, Daniel Paul Schreber, noted paranoid, uh, psychotic, German psych- 19th century psychotic uh, and Freudian case study. I guess he wrote about it. I was going to um, say, I didn't know about noted <laughs> yes. paranoid. Um, he, uh, who, uh, he called Memoirs of My Nervous Illness, which is his, his own personal memoir, dramatization of that, which I did last summer, So, who was also a cross-dresser. So there is a link there. So are you so maybe getting, I've cornered the you're market. Getting, you're getting the corner in the market on German crossdressers. <laughs> That's it's, right. It's a niche, but it's damn it, they're strange. calling Jefferson Mays whenever That's that right. comes up. How I never thought I'd have this niche. And I'm very curious to ask about a, a show that you did uh, about a year ago down in Baltimore. You did took the unusual step, and the theater took the unusual step of of you playing Peter Pan. Yes. And a uh, role typically played by women for the androgynous character. Mm-hmm. What was that experience of stepping in, We're, we should say, in the play, not the musical? Right, in, the, um, in, the, in, the, in Barry's yeah, play, which is a wonderful play. This wonderful, confused, pre-Freudian text, you know, utterly innocent. But not usually performed by men in their 30s. No, I guess it was first performed by a man in the 1980s in England. I think that was the first time. And uh, and I, I I sort of understood why as soon as they put me in the foy harness. I mean, it, it's, <laughs> it was a little uh, uncomfortable to be was, hoisted up yes, in certain areas. It uh-huh. was uh, all that flying uh, wears a person down. But uh, uh, it was it was a, a wonderful experience, especially being a thirty, I guess, seven year old man at the time, playing the boy who never grew up, um, which most of my friends seem to be. But uh, it's it's a gorgeous play. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I so love doing it. But that was, yes, the last role that I did but before Charlotte. is there this quality? It's interesting because, of course, the androgyny of that, play, women playing a boy, a man playing a boy, and, of course, the, the transformative quality. Is that – why do you think people are, are looking at you for that for that interesting mix of, of qualities? Mm, that's interesting. I don't know. I don't know. I can see the relationship between Charlotte and Peter now that you mention it, though. I mean, they both have sort of constructed their own Neverlands. Uh, her Grundetzeit Museum, which is this place that I- evokes this bygone era in which she inhabits, uh, which she inhabits, um, and his his magical island on which he lives. They're both f- people that live in a, f- a fantasy world of sorts of their own devising. Yeah. And going back to fantasy worlds. As a child, the family television set broke. Yes, and the, your parents didn't go out and replace it. No, I grew up without uh, without a television, and also in a neighborhood devoid of other children. So I uh, played by myself a lot. So it all is so simple now. Thank you. This is like yes months well, of therapy. Th- yes, and and with all within <laughs> a fifty less than a fifty Thank, minute hour. That's right. How, how much do you charge? But Howard? but growing up. In Connecticut, you did have the opportunity to see a lot of theater because there's a lot of good regional theater there. And so were you going to theater? I was. I actually saw theater before I saw film. Um, And I remember, oh, I remember that. That's true. I remember my first film, which was, I think, Beneath the Planet of the Apes or something. Oh, a good cultural start to a fine career as a stage actor. That's right. And uh, I, um, but I'd see nothing but children's theater at the Yale Rep uh, growing up. 
and uh, and it's sort of an ambivalent reaction to it to children's theater. But what I did love was going down into the undercroft at the Rep and meeting the cast in costume afterwards. And of course they were you know dressed as grasshoppers and or <laughs> ants or worms and James and the Giant Peach. So they were in this liminal state between actor and character. And that was thrilling to me. And then I went to this movie, and it was a theater. Uh, it was a proscenium arch, a curtain, all these elements that I recognized. We were sitting in the same way, and the movie began beneath the planet of the apes, I think, and uh, I saw all these monkeys and gorillas with guns on horseback, and and um, and then I burst into tears. Just, I was terrified, and I had to be taken from the theater out into the lobby. My mother said, what's wrong with you? Um, what's what's the matter? And I said, I don't want to meet the monkeys after the show. <laughs> and then my mother very sweetly and deftly said, no, 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 this does not happen here. This is not real. This is just a string of images. And this is not happening in real time. You won't have to meet any of the monkeys afterwards. And then I remember this feeling of disappointment. Of like, well, what kind of experience is this? Where there are no, uh, you know, monkeys to meet at the end of the... Uh, mm-hmm. They were terrifying, but I still would like to have the opportunity, at least, uh, to meet them, perhaps. And you were 17 at the time. I was 17 <laughs> years old, yeah. And I was about, I guess, five or uh-huh. six. Something that, uh, that interests me now, as I understand it, this is your first appearance on Broadway. Yes. And you're, you have won the Tony as the best actor. The show has won the Tony as the best play. Avenue Q won the Tony as the best musical, mm-hmm. and the two principals in that were both nominated. They did not win, but they were both nominated for Tonys themselves. Yes. Both of the shows started off-Broadway. They were considered little shows, yeah. and they moved to Broadway. Well, we should even say these are shows that were both developed at small not-for-profits right. even before they began off-Broadway right. with the Sundance for, for I Am My Own Wife and yeah. uh, the O'Neill Center for Avenue Q. But I don't know what your question is, John. Uh, well, I just I'm, wanted to what, put in the plug yeah, What, what I'm leading up to is both of these were little shows. It became big hits, Tony winners. You yourself won the Tony. What kind of a message is this sending to theater in general and to the producers of shows in New York? Uh, is, is, is this some message going out, do you think? I think so. I, I just, I find, I'm just so sort of excited and moved by this phenomenon. And I hope it's not an anomaly. And I, but but, but it, what it says to me is that, um, yes, that small theaters are to be nurtured. And work is to be nurtured. I am my own wife, and I'm not sure so much about Avenue Q, but has had the luxury of being given time to develop. I mean, we started in 2000, and uh, over the years, you know, meeting for a couple of weeks here and there, with, uh, you know, going off to do other things in between, but we were given the luxury of time and and people's uh, trust, belief, and resources, uh, which to, ve- to develop. Um, and so I hope people will be mindful of this, this the, the importance of, of, of a period of gestation. Uh, you cannot make great work overnight. And it's amazing. I mean, throughout the American regional theater system, you know, you uh, arrive the first day for the first reading to do Long Day's Journey Tonight, meet your mother and father and brother, uh, total strangers to you. And then over the course of four weeks, you have to make this O'Neill masterpiece. And it does happen. You know, miracles do happen. But, But I think time is so important. And both these shows have a message to deliver. Uh, they, they both have light moments, certainly, 
you have some very funny moments in your show, as does Avenue Q, but they both have messages, which is also interesting, that they're not just you know mindless entertainment for a couple hours. Mm-hmm. It shows you can get very involved with the characters as well as the message of the show. Yeah, yeah. I think that's heartening. Great. Well, I know you have a performance to give shortly, and we thank you greatly for coming in. And let me echo uh, Howard's congratulations on winning the Tony. Oh, thank you. And we're hoping that we'll see you again on Broadway, that this will not be your only Broadway appearance. Jefferson Mays, our guest today on Downstage Center. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm John Von Susten of XM28 on Broadway. I'm Howard Sherman from the American Theater Wing. And please join us again next time at XM Satellite Radio.